All right, so Nahum 1, we're going to be looking at just verses 1 to 11 this morning. Like I said, a little bit different. We're not going verse by verse through this passage. It really is going to propel us back to a more positive teaching of what it looks like to disciple the next generation and some of the troubling things that happened in Nineveh that ultimately resulted in God's judgment as presented uh, through this prophet. And so let's start at verse 1. God's word says this, an oracle concerning Nineveh. The book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they, now this is describing the Ninevites, for they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed with stubble fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. This is the word of the Lord. Wow, some good news for us today, right? So what happened to Nineveh? We've spent the past four weeks, now the fifth week, looking at Jonah and his mission to Nineveh to to, uh, preach to them, to call them to repentance. Uh, And this is what happened. So Nahum in history, we're looking about 100 years after Jonah's ministry in Nineveh, eventually Nineveh's evil ways resurfaced, plaguing future generations. And, And here's the truth. This is the reality. God's justice could no longer be skirted, scoffed at, and avoided. Scripture tells us in the New Testament, God will not be mocked. The Lord raised up another great nation, Babylon, who overtook Assyria, which was where Nineveh was housed within that nation. Now, we, we acknowledge this. That's not great news, is it? It's nothing to rejoice over, but it is something we can learn from, and that's the aim this morning. It's the aim of our sermon today. What can we learn from Assyria or Nineveh's eventual downfall and destruction? We, we learn this simple truth, okay? We are one generation away from losing the fabric of our faith, losing our children to sin and destruction. This is a sobering reality. As we also recognize in the landscape of our culture, uh, we've seen stats that, that church attendance is in decline. Now, I want to acknowledge this. We would agree that people are not saved simply by attending church, right, and, and checking that box. But church attendance and being a part of a church is a good indicator of, of uh, the decline of that, is a good indicator of the spiritual decline of our country and the church in America. We should be concerned about these things, shouldn't we? We should be asking this, what can be done about this? What do we do? Pastor uh, Kerry Nyhoff, who writes extensively on church leadership and cultural shifts and changes, penned an article on the reasons he believes that is leading to 
declining church attendance. The, the striking aspect of this article to me is the connection to idolatry for most of the reasons given. Now, you might think, like, what is this word idolatry that you're using? Idolatry is worshiping something other than God, right? Holding created things, oftentimes they can be blessings to us, but they become idols when we put them in the position that we honor and worship them in the place of God. We make them an ultimate thing. Sin causes this. Sin causes us to take good things and make them into God things. This is the close connection. We have a connection to Nineveh. You believe that? This is the close connection that we have in our culture and society with Nineveh. They were an idolatrous people who held many gods in, the place, in a place of esteem above the one true God, Yahweh. We too, in our culture, struggle with the same demons. There, there's nothing new happening. If we look at history, we see the same stuff cycled over and over and over again. It's the same idolatrous garbage that has always existed since the fall of humanity. Here are some of the reasons given uh, for church decline, according to uh, Pastor Nyhoff. One, affluence. So we see in our, our culture that we're, that we're more affluent. Okay, People have more money. What is that? It's the God of money, right? We worship the God of money. More affluence, more money means that perhaps we have less stress in our life. So if I'm not stressed out, I don't need to be praying to God. I don't need to be seeking after him because I got everything covered on my own through my God of money. Another thing that we see that keeps people from being involved in the church, kids' activities, right? The God of sports or the God of family, that those things take precedent over my family's worship of Jesus. Travel, right? We, we are a nomadic people. We're moving around all the time traveling. The God of experience. And even that could be connected back to the God of affluence or money. Uh, blended families. Okay, so one weekend dad's going to church and mom isn't or vice versa. Blended families has had an impact on church attendance. The God of, of individualism or sexual freedom or lack of commitment or divorce has caused that. Another thing that has impacted church attendance is what we would call, I'm going to use some quotes here, online church, okay? I hate to break it to you, but watching online is not being a part of a church. God has called his people to gather together physically to worship Jesus. There is, it's a means of grace that he's given us. There is something spiritual that happens. Uh, the Holy Spirit moves when the people of God gather together, and that can't be replicated while you're watching a screen online. Another reason is the, the cultural disappearance of guilt, right? We are becoming a less and less spiritually aware culture. Another one, self-directed spirituality. So the God of self-help. I don't need community. I don't need the church. I can handle it on my own. On the church's end, churches focusing and valuing numbers over engagement, connection of people. So we're just, we're just counting people in seats, but we're not worried about actually connecting and doing this, shepherding the people that the Lord has brought to us. Number nine, a failure to see a benefit. Okay, we call this consumerism. Folks coming to church because of what benefits them. Okay, the church down the road has better coffee, or that church up the road has better kids program. You guys tracking with me? We call that consumerism. And then lastly, a cultural shift uh, in America. So America is changing Rapidly, We have to acknowledge these things, that these are going on. And then we ask the question, how do we address this? Here's the answer. Discipleship. 
Discipleship, which is also what was lacking in Nineveh. This is our connection here and our main idea. Discipleship is the responsibility of each generation. Discipleship is the responsibility of each generation. I want to define discipleship for you. I don't want to just assume that everybody knows what that means. Discipleship is this. It's the process of one person investing into another with the goal of training and teaching that person to be a fully committed follower of Jesus who loves God by loving others. That's what discipleship means. We each, each and every one of us, who identify as Christians, who have placed our faith, trust, confidence in Jesus, have been filled with his spirit, we each have the calling and burden of training up one another in this way. All of us are called to that task. Did you know that? Not just some. Everybody. An amazing guiding passage for this call is actually found in the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. I love Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 9, actually the first passage of scripture I ever preached about 12 years ago was Deuteronomy chapter 6. So I'm circling back around again. And it says this, such a beautiful passage. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them, you shall teach them diligently, right, with care, to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. One of the great shepherd leaders found in the Bible is a man named Moses Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit. Deuteronomy now is the culmination of reflection and firsthand witness of God's power and mercy. It's, it's also a unique insight into the experience on Moses' end and Israel to a certain extent of God's discipline or his judgment. Moses, in fact, was withheld the opportunity to physically experience the promised land because of a sinful mishap in his own leadership. Moses draws on both his personal experience of grace and discipline and the experience of God's grace on his own rebellious people, Israel, to grant the generations coming lasting guidance in the book of Deuteronomy. That's what we have in that scripture. Picture this, this guidance from Moses. Moses is kind of entering the, the final stages of life. It's his farewell address or his farewell sermon to his people. One last attempt to stir up his people to love and affection for God. And this, this passage is going to guide us this morning as we learn from the downfall of Nineveh that we've been working through in the book of Jonah and then now as we jump to uh, see the Lord's judgment coming from the prophecy of Nahum. And we should seek to grow in light of their disobedience, right? We don't want to repeat the mistakes that they made in Nineveh, do we? And so what are we going to look at first? We're going to look at Jonah's focus. Jonah's focus. As we've learned over the past four weeks, Jonah was called to Nineveh, a great enemy of Israel, to speak the words that the Lord gave to him. In our English translation, it is a short message of judgment that he brings to Nineveh. Jonah proclaimed, Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. As a result of this message, all of Nineveh repented 
They called upon God's mercy, and the Lord relented from his immediate judgment of the great city. And then Jonah, as we learned last week, he responded in this way in Jonah chapter 4, verse 5. Jonah went out of the city, and he sat on the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Do you guys remember what his posture was like towards Nineveh, though? He was mad, right? He said, I'm so angry, I could what? Die. That's pretty mad, isn't it? He was angry that God had relented from his judgment towards the enemies of Israel. We learned that that Jonah's attitude and heart were not geared toward helping the Ninevites grow in their newfound repentance. He had no intention of helping them continue to walk in the ways of the Lord. His focus was on the anger he felt that God would allow a people that harmed and oppressed the Israelites to continue to flourish, thrive, and be the recipients of grace and mercy. My head went here. What if, right? What if, though? What if Jonah didn't just go on a hill and sat there pointing the finger at Nineveh and saying, God, I'm waiting for you to judge these people? What if Jonah had a little skin in the game and actually invested in the growth of the Ninevites? He was more concerned with his personal feelings and questioning God's justice than seeing the conversion of, Scripture says, over 120,000 people seeing that through. What if Jonah didn't just plop down on the hillside in anger, but instead continued doing this, sharing, declaring, and showing the Ninevites what it means to be a follower of the one true God? What if his ongoing message was something like Moses' teaching from Deuteronomy chapter 5, if we look at verses 32 and 33, where Moses says, you shall be careful therefore to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. I want to pause there because that statement should actually draw our memories back to chapter 4 last week where God speaks to Jonah teaching him and he's saying, I care about these 120,000 people who don't know what? Their right hand from their left. Now here, before that happened, Moses says, you shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in all the way that your Lord has commanded you, your Lord God has commanded you, that you may live, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land that you shall possess. Those are good blessings, aren't they? We would say that's a good life. But Jonah had no focus toward this. Instead, he focused on his his personal feelings and comforting himself in his own self-righteous pity. But did you know this truth talk this morning, all right? Did you know that some of us have this same type of attitude toward the next generation coming along? We have this same kind of attitude. We sit on a hill looking upon their slow and steady destruction, pointing a finger, calling on God to do something, but engaging very little in the process ourselves. We may rejoice when they profess faith in Jesus. We may clap when they're being baptized, but we can often struggle to disciple the young ones among us. You want to know what the most difficult area of ministry is to draw volunteers into to help? What is it? Kids ministry. The next generation. 
And yet, how many times have we said, maybe in the last six months to the year, like, man, I don't know about this generation coming up. Anybody said that? I know I have. I don't know about them coming up. What are we going to do about it? We point out the, the many negative aspects of generational difference, but do not dare lift a finger to mentor, to help, to disciple. One, one of my best friends in ministry uh, ministers just right up the road from us, Pastor Nate Ashbaugh at Little Flock. He says it this way. He's, he says this all the time. He says, I'm a product of many faithful men who have invested in me. Where are the faithful men and women who are going to invest in this next generation? We need you. I'm the, I'm the product of faithful pastors who invested in me. Many of you are the product of faithful men and women who invested in you. Who's going to invest in the next generation? Who's going to raise them up? Who are you called to disciple and mentor? Right? Where's your focus? Jonah's focus was on being mad and crossing his arms up in the hill. Is our focus going to be the same thing, or are we going to get our hands dirty? Are we going to do, discipling is hard, isn't it? Are we going to do the hard work? It's uncomfortable. It's perplexing. Sometimes you don't have the answers. You don't know what to say. The next generation needs us, family. They need us to invest in them. Where is your focus? But it's not all Jonah's fault. He, he was the outsider, right? He, he's not part of the family per se. And so next we're going to look at Nineveh's folly. Nineveh's folly. In, in Jonah 3, we have, we have this dramatic reversal of a situation, right? They, Nineveh sits on the precipice of God's judgment. They're right on the cliff. But they respond positively to Jonah's message, and the Lord, it says, relents. There's, there seems to be a change of heart, a conversion, we would say. But it's not, it's not lasting, is it? Right about 100 years later, when this prophecy comes, we can see that everything's a mess once again in Nineveh about a generation or so. The radical conversion is lost, gone, and we, we see the heart of Nineveh once again turn to wickedness. It's not a good description in verses 10 and 11, where the Bible says, for they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. If Jonah is the outside influence to help Nineveh grow in appreciation and and obedience of the Lord's statutes, Nineveh itself stands to represent the internal influence, the family coming together to learn the ways of the Lord and to continue to walk in his ways. If we think back to Jonah chapter 3, right, the, the king in, in dramatic fashion, when he realized the error of his people's ways, he called for a fast, right? He stepped down from his throne. He removed his, his royal garments. He put on sackcloth and sat in ashes. He called for all the people and the animals to do the same thing, to follow him. But it's obvious that this posture of humility and repentance did not carry on. That's why the Lord's judgment is promised through Nahum. It was lost. Perhaps it was just an emotional response and, and fear of God's judgment. And yet, I firmly believe with steady obedience in raising up their children, and their, the scripture always uses this term, their children's children, 
in a lifestyle of humility before the Lord God that they would have understood the importance of continuing in the Lord's way and walking in his ways. And even though Jonah sat afar and did not help, the scriptures are clear. They teach that each person has the law of God written on their hearts. We find that in Romans 2.15. And yet there was not lasting change among these people. It was just a conversion experience with no growth in holiness. But if they would have followed God's blueprint, his plan, which is given in Deuteronomy 6, perhaps the ways of the Lord would have transformed their evil and violent tendencies, and they would have been this. They would have been a beacon of light toward God. I mean, we have those marvelous stories of of men and women who have been radically transformed by the power of the gospel and the pouring out of God's spirit that they were doing nothing but making their life and everybody else's life a mess and then they're radically transformed by God What? and they're a beacon of light for the gospel. So many stories of people like that. Imagine the story of Nineveh. If they would have continued on in a, in a life of repentance and following after the Lord's ways, but they didn't. They went back into their wickedness. They could have been a beacon of light, but they weren't. The families of Nineveh, beginning with the king, they should have taught this message. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, this should have been proclaimed from the throne. Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them. Do you notice that word? It's an action word. Obey, keep, do. Do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it. Here's what you're to do. That you may fear the Lord your God, you and what? Your son and your son's son. Do you see the generations there? By what? Keeping, obeying, doing all his statutes and his commandments, which I commanded you all the days of your life, And here's the promise, and that your days may be long. They may be blessed. Let this be a warning to us. Some 3,000 years later, we struggle with the same issues, believe it or not. There's nothing new. We struggle with the, the same focus of Jonah sitting and judging from afar without being actively engaged in discipleship. We struggle with the, the heart of family life where discipleship is the most important lesson we can hand down to our children and our children's children, okay? It's way more important than, than getting good grades in school or a career that pays a bunch of money or, or a, a pro sports career. It's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. May my children live that. The amazing thing is that that God gives us the exact guidance for the situation that we have. Here's what I'm saying. His word is still relevant even in our time. This, This passage written thousands of years ago still is meaningful to us. God's word is timeless. That's our third point. We see God's generational blueprint, right? The what do we do? Some of you may be saying, what do we do? What's the plan? The title of this sermon is One Generation Away. We must heed the warning of Nahum. Let us not sink further and further into godless ways, but obey the teachings of Scripture and Scripture's blueprint for discipleship, for training up and growing the next generation. 
the first thing we need to do is we need to hear. We need to hear the message for ourselves. We can't disciple somebody else unless we believe what Scripture teaches. We must hear for ourselves the truth of who God is and receive this truth. We, we can't invest and disciple in another person unless we embrace the whole message of the gospel. I want to define what the gospel is for you this morning. The gospel is this, that God came from heaven and he took on human flesh in the person and work of Jesus. Fully God, fully human. Jesus lived perfectly in perfect obedience to the law of God and perfect obedience to the will of God. Even unto death, Jesus went to the cross and he willingly laid down his life on the cross. He shed his blood. His blood is an atoning blood, okay? It covers our sin through faith in his justifying work on the cross. We are saved. Jesus died on the cross. Bodily, he went into the grave. The stone was rolled in front of the grave. And on the third day, Jesus rose from the grave in victory over sin and death. And by faith in the work of Jesus, in believing that he is our covering for our sin, God clothes us in the righteousness of his son so that he looks upon us. God the Father looks upon you and he says, you are my child. If we only have faith, confidence, and trust in Christ as our savior, as our righteousness, we have to hear this message and respond Embrace the whole message of the gospel and its implications. Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5. Notice this word, hear, right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Interestingly enough, a notable figure in the New Testament repeated this same verse. Hearing this statement doesn't give us all the detail, but we get at the heart of God right here. Because in the context of Deuteronomy, Moses has just spent the first five chapters, he's gone through the history of God's dealings with Israel, his redemptive plan, his love, mercy, and grace toward them, his pursuit of them, not because they were good or great, but because of his great love, because of grace. Moses charges the people to hear of this great Lord and to serve him, to hear of his mercy and to receive it with with love in their heart, to pursue after him with all their heart, soul, and it says might, with everything, right? Everything given to God. What's the second thing? What's the second part of the blueprint? Do. We always try to skip over this one, don't we? There's some stuff we have to do. Here's the truth. Faith is meaningless without evidence. I affirm the, the old Reformation era statements that we are saved by. Hear this truth. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, as revealed in the scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone. Amen? This is an inward reality made known, though, through outward living. Simply put, doing. Bearing spiritual fruit is the receipt, right? When I buy something, if I want to return it, I need proof, don't I? It's the proof. Our fruit is the proof of faith that we have in Jesus. 
We not only hear the word of the Lord, right? The Ninevites heard and received the message of God through Jonah, but we must also evidence our hearing by doing. Verse 6, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. They should be all in you. God's blueprint goes from, from hearing to doing. This is the heart of discipleship, kind of where the, the rubber meets the road. What does it mean to obey, keep, and do the commands of God? We, we can say it this way. How do I grow in Christ's likeness? How do I act like Jesus? Deuteronomy 6.3, Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, Moses said, that it may go well with you. Discipleship aims at helping one another to do the commands of God. I want to get super practical. There's resources for you to do this. If you feel ill-equipped for the task, every Christian is called to disciple another brother or sister. We have tools. You want to know what one of the most important tools is? The Bible. Scripture. We have other tools. We have books. I love books. This is a cool book. It's actually the Bible also, but it's little journal Bibles. We do this sometimes with our family. We'll pick out a, like a New Testament epistle or letter, and we'll go through with our kids and read through, and then you got pages where you can put notes on there. That's a great way to disciple somebody. In our, in our bulletin every week, I don't know if you notice this, but we, we post the New City Catechism question. It's a question for each week. This is a great way to be trained up yourself, to know more about God, and to put that into action by doing. Uh, You can read it in our bulletin, but you can also buy uh, this book. This is a great one to go through with your children. And then lastly, there's this uh, awesome resource uh, from Francis Chan uh, called Multiply. We've handed these out for free before if you would just agree to disciple somebody. It's a great kind of introduction to discipleship and, and helping walk through that process. Books are great for if you don't know what to do to help you walk step by step through that process of discipling someone. Did you know that everybody in this room that's a Christian is called to do that? Nobody gets an exemption from making a disciple. It's not just the, the pastors or the elders or the deacons or the staff team. Every single person in here that is a follower of Jesus It's called to be a disciple maker. So we have these resources, the Bible, these extra books that I've presented up here. There's tons of other resources out there. Here's the other thing that we have to give. We have our example. Are you living in honor of the commands of God? We are an example to other brothers and sisters in Christ to be raising them up in the ways of the Lord. Do they see Jesus in you? Lastly, our last point, we desire to grow the kingdom of God to multiply to multiply. Our culture tells us, hey, you believe what you believe, but just what? Keep it to yourself, right? Don't tell me how to live. Don't tell me what to do. Here's the reality uh, of the gospel, of this good news. It drives us to be missional people, to be people on mission, to be eager to share. If I have good news, I want to share it with people, don't I? I've shared this before. I know the, the Saturday evening that I asked my wife's hand in marriage, that I asked her to marry me, we were engaged. The next day we went to church. Did we keep that news to ourselves? No. My girl was walking in there like this, right, with the ring. Check this out. I got a ring on my finger. It was good news. 
We're getting married. We don't keep that to ourselves, do we? We're called to multiply, to be on mission. Look at Deuteronomy 6, 7 to 9. You shall teach them diligently to your children. That's the first layer that we multiply. Our children. Did you know, you know what today is? It's a special Sunday. It's kind of cool that we're preaching on this. It's family fifth Sunday. Look around. We've got a bunch of little kids in here right now. We've got middle schoolers, high schoolers. It's, anytime there's a fifth Sunday, we want our kids to be in here with us because we're training them up to be able to sit through church and be a part of the church. We always say they're the future of the church. No, they're, they're like the right now of the church. They're the present. They're part of the family of God. They're the most important ministry that we have, aren't they? Our kids. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Man, that sounds like a lot of coverage, doesn't it? Every part of the day, we're talking about Jesus. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Now, the, the Israelites actually took this very seriously and literally. They would literally tie like little boxes of scripture onto their foreheads and walk around with the scriptures right on their head. Okay, Here, you don't have to do this, but I want to ask you to do this. Why don't, you, why don't you read the scriptures and commit them to memory so that they're in your head? So that you can talk about Jesus. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Our homes should be beacons of light for Christ. That's why we're going to do this, this series on hospitality on Wednesday nights in, in a few weeks. Is our, do our homes preach the gospel as people come in? Do they feel welcomed as, as Christ ministered to and welcomed people and walked alongside people? Uh, Nate, our discipleship director, said this this last week. You see oftentimes in, in Scripture, uh, Jesus was either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. What is that? Hospitality, right? Does your home scream the gospel? You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Family, we are called to be a people on mission, to multiply, to share the gospel. Everyone we come in contact with should know who we are and who we serve. I serve King Jesus so that they may see the result of grace on our life and ask, right, what's different about this person? What's different about this church? How come, why do they have hope when their life's a mess or they're dealing with a sickness or finances aren't as perfectly as they should be? The scripture says this, that they may see our good deeds and ultimately glorify God. Amen.